Welcome to Hep Talks. I'm Luke Kemper, and this episode is part one of my interview with Chaz Golding and Lawrence Hu, the founders of the Cargo Movement. The Cargo Movement is a creative grassroots organization that began in Bristol. It features, among other work, a fantastic set of educational resources that aim to increase black representation in the school curriculum. You can find out more about Cargo at their website, cargomovement.org, and, of course, by listening to the rest of this podcast. Chaz and Lawrence, first of all, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Luke. It's good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And um, yeah, I want you to tell us a little bit, uh, first of all, about yourselves. And then um, what is cargo? Because I think when I say that people might not really know, you know, we know the word, but um, what is the organization? So first of all, maybe introduce yourselves. Uh, Chaz, if I could start with you. Go ahead. Yeah, my name is Chaz Golding. Um, I'm co-founder of Cargo Movement um, and creative director. Yeah. So that's that's short and sweet. Um, I'm Lawrence, uh, the other co-founder of Cargo Movement, and um, I'm poet and executive producer. Fantastic. And just, I guess, from both of you, uh, what what is the Cargo Movement? In if you could put it in brief, I know we're going to talk about it for most. Yeah, of the- I mean, I mean, Cargo came out of um, uh, a long kind of collaborative relationship with myself and Lawrence working together creatively on various projects from short form documentaries to um, art installations. We've worked together for several years. Um, I first met Lawrence through his work. I came across a book of his in a um, bookstore in Bristol. Um, That book was called Inner City Tales. That jumped off the kind of the rack and then I dived into it, thought it was really interesting. And then I managed to meet Lawrence a little later through a mutual friend. We started working together as I started to kind of add a visual component to some of his writing. Um, um, I'm kind of um, traditionally a filmmaker um, and graphic designer. Um, So we came together and collaborated on a number of projects which culminated in the the cargo project, which initially started as a, a, a mobile exhibition space. Lawrence was in the process of exhibiting his poetry via these large canvases um, where he had his um, words printed and and they accompanied these um, gigantic images. And we, we were kind of installing some of these into um, gallery space in Bristol. And and then coming up against a little resistance along the way in terms of, you know, individuals, galleries not wanting to exhibit the material and not feeling comfortable with some of the material, which touched on topics that people um, uh, didn't feel great about. Um, so we decided that we wanted to make our own gallery space um, that was that we could control and that was outside of the traditional gallery system. So we designed a, a mobile exhibition space in cargo containers, in shipping containers. Um, and that's where Cargo was born, really. Cargo stands for Charting African Resilience, Generating Opportunities. Um, but its initial kind of life was as a immersive mobile exhibition experience. So we got Arts Council funding 
Um, we 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 created our first immersive experience at a place called the Watershed in Bristol. Um, we invited a lot of people along to experience you know, the, the start of the cargo journey. And then shortly after the pandemic hit, and uh, we realized that these small confined mobile exhibition spaces weren't going to work in that environment. So, so we we then pivoted the project to what was at the what was planned to be the end of the um, exhibition kind of tour, um, which was going to be a education engagement. Um, and we decided to make that the first thing that we do, which then became Cargo Classroom, which became a series of online digital education resources called cargo classroom so i mean maybe lawrence you want to chip into you know a bit more about that story um but that's kind of where it began i think that's the journey and i think i could like i'll throw a couple of dates into the story so we get a timeline a little bit so yeah i think i think Chad saw my book it was back in two five early 2007 I believe it's either late 2006 or 2007 because it was published in October 2006. And then we bumped into each other, as he said, for a mutual friend in 2007. It was either just before or just after Notting Hill Carnival um, in London when Chaz was um, filming with our mutual friend, which it was Di, wasn't it, at the time? So he's shooting a piece with DJ Di, which is a friend of us, and Di introduced us and... Chaz said about the book, and Chaz was actually the very first person I'd met who'd actually purchased any of my work. So he was like, I bought this book, I find it really interesting. And we just hit it off from there, Chaz said, and from that moment in 2007, I had another exhibition coming up later that year, but the first exhibition then, and Chaz helped around there. And that's how our relationship has just grown from then. We then, some of these small bits, we did a, like a guerrilla piece of work around the reopening of the Colston Hall when it had a huge development done to it back in 2009 to highlight things around Edward Colston and the history of the hall as well as around this. So we did that, which was supported by other artists in the city. And then that brings us, I suppose, to 2000 other bits. And then it was 2016. And it was this thing where it was trying to get some of the work shown. As I said, some people find it very difficult to look at. And it was like, keep having to go and asking permission, trying to get permission to display your work in these spaces. And it was like, well, how can we not need any permission? How can we just display this and, and create the space for ourselves? And having it there, it was very transportable so we could take it and place it anywhere we wanted to and we weren't confined to one spot. And that's how the shipping containers, I remember we sat down, we were going over the idea one evening. The thing is, Chaz can visualise something very quickly and create it from, from the work or from a talk and... That came up and started looking at the figure doing it actually in the shipping containers. That was the cargo thing. And I can remember we sat down. Originally, part of it was cool. we were looking at the day before. It was like ship shape and Bristol fashion because it was quite linked to a night of a Bristol when we came out of that. And we came up with the name Cargo. And we sat down one evening. I remember it Chad's flat. And then on the way back, was running over the idea for what can we, we, we make cargo mean? I remember because Chaz sometimes sets me homework. I remember one of those platforms was there. It's like, right, we got, let's work around this. So we did that. That came up. That's 2016, what Chaz had explained already. And then what was quite funny, though, when, when COVID came with the pandemic, it was the fact that a lot of what this work was about was about people who were being taken and put into confines with people they didn't know. 
And the exact reason what changed the, the way of being able to put this on is because people didn't want that. And for a moment, it felt like, well, we need to make them get into this space even more because the, the, how they're feeling and so uncomfortable to give them that added layer of actually this is what it's like for the individuals because a lot of it was looking around the people that had been enslaved through the, um, the transatlantic trade of enslaved Africans. But it wasn't to look at the negatives and just looking at the dehumanising the story. There was very freely available, it's the common narrative that is put out there, to actually look at the accomplishments and achievements of people of African and African diaspora heritage, what they had done to enable their own freedom, to what they had done that was really responsible for me and Chaz sitting here today being able to talk to you, instead of being this very disempowered, dehumanising narrative of people that were taken from this dark land, they were savages, um, they had to be taken to be civilised, Christianized, and once they'd, they felt that their captors felt that they'd done that, then they were given their freedom, which the actual story is very different. Yeah, it's, it's all completely, you know, um, correct. But I just wanted to just add another point in there around accessibility. One of the reasons why we wanted to create these cargo containers with the, the work within is that they could travel to the audience. Often a lot of these spaces, gallery spaces and kind of art and culture spaces um are designed for a certain demographic and they and they and they're quite exclusionary around um a, a certain groups of and of individuals so say for example people from the inner city would never necessarily feel comfortable in in an arts council funded space or your kind of classic white cube you know they felt that that wasn't the place that they felt at home so we wanted to take that information to the audience and with the flexibility of having it in a mobile space meant that we could do that. We could land the exhibition on the doorsteps of people who were probably less empowered and less um, and less confident to um, um, break out of the, the areas that they live in. Um, and so that that was one at the root of why we decided to do those containers. But then also the pandemic made us rethink the project but the, but still retaining the accessibility at its core. So the idea of developing digital resources is nothing new. But at that time, it, there weren't the, the the breadth of resources on the subjects that we were talking about available. There were they weren't they weren't as um, advanced. They weren't as layered as the resources we were creating, um, and they also weren't free. Um, and that was one of the big things. We wanted to make it available for anybody, easily accessible online. We were going into the pandemic with everybody in isolation and everybody kind of chewing up the internet, um, kind of needing content, wanting wanting stuff to look at, wanting stuff to learn. Yeah. And and, and we, we were there at that time creating that material and making sure that anybody could access it. And I think that's really at the heart of what we try to do is create no barriers of engagement reduce remove the barriers of engagement and enhance the storytelling through kind of um um through many types of techniques whether that's augmented reality or whether that's kind of 3d visualizations or whether that's you know through through kind of textured video or whatever 
or three-dimensional audio, all of these techniques we use to try and help engage the viewer and engage the learner. So, um, so yeah, coming from a place where we wanted to take the experience to the people, we 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 ended up doing the same thing, but in a digital space. And I think that the pandemic was a was a weird kind of blessing in disguise, really, because it made us think on our feet and made us kind of refine our offering and make our make what we were delivering more effective we were managed to what we the audiences we were we were pegged to reach during the exhibition were nowhere near the audiences that we managed to reach through the online engagement so um so yeah through a decision outside of our hands enabled us to kind of expand our offering and kind of create something that really created a quite a big impact one of the things that we we often felt uncomfortable with with the original installation was the cost that it was going to be to actually only have a limited reach because it ended up running into like hundreds of thousands of pounds um, to actually set and place this. And it only had a very limited shelf life. And that was always something that was quite difficult to get your head around. But now the audience, in a sense, is unlimited. It's global. Uh, and, and it continues to live on even when the work has, has been completed. And one bit that always gets forgot, so I'm going to throw it in there because I'm, um, the first thing that we actually put out as Cargo was the Cargo Poetry Collection, which all the lessons have subsequently been built from. So that was that was originally a book that was published in beginning of October, about well, 14th of October. And then we did the installation, the first previews of our installation on the 16th of October. And that was back in 2019. Have you guys done podcast interviews before? Because you hit on so many touch points there. <laughs> Hopefully there's enough there for people to get hold of. <laughs> yeah. Plenty, plenty. I actually have a few kind of follow-up questions that I wanted to ask. So first, I think our listeners might be curious. Both of you mentioned that initially when you were looking for galleries and places to set up, some of the the artwork that you were going to display maybe wasn't taken in the the way you wanted in the right way what what was it what was the content um can you get into that a little bit or uh, and why people might have been uncomfortable with it right i think some of that journey started off with the exhibition that was actually in 2007 and that was called who's story it, it was put together because 2007 was the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade so it was looking at that time period but for a non-Eurocentric lens. And that's what it was. And a few of the images at that time, there were a few um, of people who had been enslaved and had bad um, welts and on their back from being whipped. There's a huge image to do with lynching. A, it's very well, it's a very well-known image. And there's two teenagers that had been lynched with a huge audience watching. And if you if you just looked at the image of the people watching, and you ask someone what they were at, you'd think they're at a party or a celebration. So some of the imagery was very hard hitting as long as, as along with the words that are being written. And a lot of space at that time really didn't want to look at this or they didn't want this um, scene. So I think that's where it came up was with that body of work in the beginning, the difficulties of getting that scene. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that was, you know, one of the you know many reasons for trying to develop something outside of that system but i think also through our own personal experience we we come across bar barriers and and um attrition through the work that we do regularly 
you know, in many different forms. So I think it's really about us taking control. And I think that's more, more down to um, our kind of belief in an in independence outside of the kind of traditional systems. So I think that's really what we were striving for is an independence beyond the gov the structures and government governmental systems that kind of told you what you could and couldn't do. So we were like, how can we get the maximum control? I always remember Lawrence saying that you can put a cargo, you can park it like a car. <laughs> I mean, I was like, you know, that that whole idea that what we can have a we can have a house, we can park like a car. You know, what I mean, it's like that kind of freedom and that kind of flexibility to do what we wanted to do was really at the heart of it. And uh, and often you come up against people telling you you can't do something, and I think that's what we've heard all of our lives in in various different spaces. No, you can't do that. No, you guys can't do that. There's no way you you're going to do that. Or and we just wanted to prove people wrong and also to gain control. And I think a lot of the time we've been told at the beginning when we set up um, cargo movement as a organization, we're told, well, no, it has to be set up in a certain way. You have to do it like this. You have to have a governmental board. And, and, and we proved all of these people wrong by gaining Arts Council funding, by gaining funding from various other um, um, groups and organizations without having the perceived structures in place to, to, to do it in the way that people told us we had to do it. So we broke a lot of rules and we enjoyed breaking them. And I think, um, and I think that was really, yeah, at the root of it all really. That's really interesting. And I love the the idea about the accessibility coming together with the acronym and the, it's just, it's quite brilliant. There's, there's more I want to talk about, especially since Haringey Education Partnership is uh, an organization for schools. Um, did you guys see yourselves? I mean, I know COVID kind of switched things, but did you see yourselves going into education before that? I, I don't well, know. I'm not. Yeah, this is a this is a funny one because I always I always say this, and then Lawrence always picks me up for it afterwards and goes, "What? Well, well, that's not true. That's not true." Because because I like to say that we come at education from people who are non educators. But we've both had experience. Lawrence was a trainee, um, was was a teacher trainer. You know, he was training people in IT, and 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 there was something else as well. Lawrence, right? You do you were you were a teacher uh, uh, several times in your earlier career. Yeah, I came back. I think we take it back to the beginning a little bit. So left school. So I went to eight schools in all, two set two primary schools and six secondary schools. I left school without any education. So I've always had a issue with education but after a life yeah after a colorful um earlier life i came back and we had um, got educated to teach it and then after that i worked with young people that i've seen be say were displaced how i was displaced or disadvantaged um as a young person and weren't being given a, a chance because of where they grew up and how they looked so they were written off very early so I came back to work with young people like that. And then I became an, an NVQ assessor. So I used to assess and write ed, little education plans and then assess the qualifications and mark them. And that was much later in life. And then, but then got bored because of some of the repetitive nature of the work. It was just sitting down every day, going through, going through. I was drawn to the young people. I was drawn to the institution. And then I left that work, came away. And um, and all that change came because of having children, which we made have to address the position I was in. So then we came, came to do the poetry, and the po like my poetry has often been there 
to, in a sense, to educate or to inform. It is to be ignored, to be next to illuminate or to shine a light on some issues that often people didn't want to address. And the whole thing with the cargo was with some of the previous work, stuff we've done before, it was highlighting problems. It wasn't so solution based. And um, with the cargo work, it was like, how can we, how can we be a solution to a problem that we, that we, we see all the time? And part of that was as well being told that you can't do this, you're not good enough to do this, and you can't do that. And that's a bit like a red flag because now like, you say you can't do that, and we're, we've kind of did our heels in, like, well, well, we'll show you that we can. And then we ended up with the education. And um, to be where it is and where we are with it, I don't know if we believed that it would gather such momentum and end up being so well received and used. We thought it'd always still be. A continued fight, but that that hasn't occurred. So I don't think we, I don't know, Chad could want to come in and say, yeah, we knew this is where we we're going to end up. This is where the work was going to be. Yeah, um, not at all. I'm not, I, we, I, I didn't, I definitely didn't think this is where we'd end up. I, I always say, and that's why Lawrence always pulls me up. I said, we're not educators. We're very non-traditional um, educators, even though we've both had experience of education from both sides of the fence. Um, I think we, the, one of the reasons why we might have been successful is because we've approached things in a different way to, to um, traditional educators, traditionally trained educators. We, we, and we don't claim to be trained professional educators, um, but we work with trained professionals. Um, in in various fields. I mean, we've worked within history predominantly at the beginning, but we've moved into STEM. Um, and we we always surround ourselves with what we consider to be some of the best educators in in our field. Um, and 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 they're people who've had, you know, many years of experience. We started with kind of really um, well-heeled historians moved into more practical educators and we've we've gone we've we've worked with a, a whole line of um fantastic teachers and educators um and we always work very closely with them to make sure that the material that we're creating fit, fits the criteria and fits and and is fit for purpose you know um but but I think that what's great about our organization is that we're a collective of individuals from very different backgrounds very different disciplines we work with filmmakers we work with um audio recorders we work with poets we work with artists illustrators and we work with educators and all of these people kind of come together to kind of fulfill the need for the material as well as balancing the skill sets that are needed to create them some hopefully some enriching storytelling and some um material that can be used and is fun to use um so yeah yeah i think it's about that balance really um you know we're not we're not claiming we can do it all we just we we've got a we've got a passion for storytelling but we 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 know that we need to be surrounded by the best people um to get the best results yeah and i just add that that is the strength that in a nutshell that is it our collaborative works and the collective and sometimes it's it's, it's great when you sat in the room and you're with people that you know you actually know the least, you know, and, and then you're learning from them and growing through what they bring to us. And I think I think us our, our real strength is that we accept that and we look to work with people in their fields that so outshine anything we could have ever done. And we're like, please come in, let's let let's do this together. And and we recognize everybody else's strengths and everybody else's weaknesses, and we go try to 
we don't try to put seven hats on. We're like, right, we do this, you do that. Who, right, who could fit in all these places to do the rest? I mean, yeah, we, we we work with experienced programmers. I mean, we would never be where we are here if it wasn't for our kind of web team who have created some really fa- fantastic original kind of source code that means that we can get our material out in the quickest and the most effective possible way. Um, and also, we're just con- constantly hungry for experience and for um, narratives that kind of add to the um, add to the, the the power of our material. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're in the process of talking to a professor from South Africa who was the um, vice chancellor at um, Cape Town University because we want to know about her story. You know, her story miraculously crossed over into ours for reasons we won't get into now. But, I mean, the, her story is fantastic. As a, as a woman who worked at that level within the education system in South Africa, we know that we have a lot to learn from her. So that's why we're engaging with her for, you know, an interview series to talk to her about what, what, what she's experienced and what we can learn from that and what parallels there are um, between the experience of education in the UK. So, I mean, we'll constantly want to learn. And I think that that helps with the process. And um, we, know, we know we need to learn. Well, that kind of brings me to the next question, actually, and and it's really um, how do you guys choose uh, who you work with, and also, um, you know, what kind of resources that you're going to create? How do you choose the subject material? Uh, so, I guess two questions there, right? Who who you work with, because you just described uh, working with a fantastic collective, and then also what material you're gonna put I mean, out. I think I think we're really lucky in terms of we just these people kind of present themselves along our journey. We've, we've, we've had the real amazing luck as to come across some amazingly talented teachers and historians during our journey. And, and they, they've come to us or they've been introduced to us by mutual friends um, and, and mutual colleagues. Um, so we recognize brilliance when we see it. So we want to work with those people. Um, so we're like, yeah, great. Um, and they're often really, um, you know, enthusiastic and want to be involved in what we're doing, which we're always humbled by. So, so yeah, we, we, a lot of luck has come into play to, in terms of the professionals that we work with. Um, and then it's the stories. I mean, it's the stories that, jump off the page to us and it's the stories that inspire us and the stories that have relevance to our experience and I know that um and originally the poetry series that Lawrence wrote the cargo poetry series that was very much tied into his experience um and his need to tell that story that circular narrative which was a narrative of you know attrition and achievement that kind of you know um was a, was a, a neat package a neat timeline that told a kind of a global story um and that was something that was very you know personal to Lawrence in many ways but um because the individuals through that story are individuals that touched his life um and but then as as time's gone on individuals have been you know kind of recommended to us 
for example, Lonnie Johnson, for example, was somebody that we didn't know about, who another professor came to us and told us about this individual who's a um, inventor and pioneer from the US who worked in NASA and went on to invent the super soaker. So it was just like an amazing story, which we knew would engage children, you know, but but also had a real weight and relevance. But that was somebody we didn't know about until an, another professor, somebody who was working, Professor Steve Icon, who was working at the University of Bristol, came to us and said, have you thought about maybe doing a lesson on this guy? So, so yeah, that was somebody who was presented to us, but we just instantly knew that he was the right person because he was just such an incredibly inspiring character. And I think generally that's, that, that's the criteria for the people we choose. How how compelling are their stories and how compelling is their experience? And then I think that, and, and generally we'll pick people that tick those boxes and generally the resources that are created fit into that kind of mold you know these are in, inspiring incredible individuals their stories will spark interest they fit into a larger kind of social socially economic um kind of landscape but but also as an individual they're powerful and i think it's all about those individuals and the in the res- resonance of that individual story um but i mean lawrence i mean maybe you want to add to that in terms of how how these people how you came across those people in, in the original poetry series I think a lot of it was just doing research about people and looking at people that inspired you and you think it was like but if you would have been taught about this individual this person would that have inspired you to achieve would that have made you feel like but if they've done that, then a lot of it is like, well, then you could. And I think that's what was hugely missing through a very Eurocentric education system. Whereas you looked at the education of what you're being taught and there was t- such a lack of people that looked like you. And I think that was the thing. It's like, right, what individuals can put in that can empower you and you can look up to and you'd want to aspire to be. So that's what was driving in the beginning. And then... From then on, it was like putting call, like with Steve Eichel, it's putting call outs. We wanted to do, move from doing what key stage three, which was secondary school lessons, to doing primary school lessons um, for early years. And so we, we were putting calls out to people. Who knows anybody that could, can you think of somebody? And, and also we were looking to come out of history into STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. We were looking to come into that field to broaden the scope of where our lessons attra- were they attracted. And yeah, one day Steve Icon just phoned up and he'd gone through a few different people. And when he suddenly landed us with Lonnie Johnson, we, that was just like one of those moments where we just both went bingo. Like, it really asked me, like, NASA, US Air Force, Super Soaker and the Nerf gun. What what young person in primary school is it when I want an excuse to be able to make a big water pistol? And why looking at rockets, Air Force and other bits and pieces. There was so much that he's done. He he built a robot when he was like seven years old from discarded stuff around his garden. To win a a regional, well, national science prize um, as a a young boy, which was unprecedented for um, a a kid of his age. Um, So, you know, his whole story, I mean, there's nothing you can't pick out of that story without going, wow, that that guy, who is this guy? And why do I not know about him? So I think it's it's an element of hidden history as well. There's an element of these stories aren't widely known. So we love kind of unearthing kind of, you know, those kind of bits of information and trying to shed a bit more light on them. and also it's trying to tell an appropriate version of that story as well. I think that's a lot of our um, kind of impetus, really, because it's, for example, we're working on um, a couple of resources around the story of Henrietta Lacks, um, the woman who had her 
cells harvested without her permission, cervical cancer cells, but then her cells went on to be some of the most famous cells in history, going on to help with um, a multitude of um, scientific discoveries, even linking into the COVID vaccine. So her story is incredible, but her the telling of her story has been much maligned by her family. So we got the opportunity to meet some of her um, you know, relations, um, some of the distant relatives, they came over to the UK and we got the opportunity opportunity to meet them. And and what they were interested in is telling an authentic version of her story, because often her story wasn't told. It was a story of the cells. So it was a very dehumanizing narrative. So we, we, we they entrusted us to work with her story give us access into some bits of her story which weren't widely known and um, for the ability for us to tell it with a bit more of a balanced um, um, kind of, with a bit more of an even hand. And I think that is often uh, a real kind of uh, a reason for creating creating the work that we create, is trying to tell um, the other side of a, a one-sided story. That was Chaz Golding and Lawrence Hu, co-founders of the Cargo Movement. In this first part of the interview, they spoke about the origins of Cargo, the way it created a space for them and other artists and educators to convey topics that weren't being represented. They also discussed how the movement pivoted to education and who they work with to create their online educational resources. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to discover more about Cargo, visit their website at cargomovement.org. We'll also have part two of the interview coming up soon. I'm Luke Kemper. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned to Hep Talks.